of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 120. In isolated, small-scale, pre-literate societies, historical knowledge is based on the traditions of prominent families, and King Mushweshwe I is no different. We joined Mushweshwe just before the arrival of the Trekkers, as he sought to build his political power once the Ngwani and the other roving bands had been defeated. Mzilikatsi was attacking the area which would become known as Lesotho, from his headquarters on the Arpis River, north of modern Pretoria. His regiments were preying on the Shona people across the Limpopo and all the way down to the southern Basutu through the mid-1820s into the 1830s. Mushweshwe was at great pains to avoid fighting the Indibeli Impis, and in 1828 he had delivered oxen to Mzilikatsi with the message that Moshesh salutes you, supposing that hunger has brought you into this country. He sends you these cattle that you may eat them on your way home. Later, Mushweshwe would send cattle to the British governor, Sir George Cathcart, in a similar attempt at placating a threatening power. That would not work out, but it did work with Mzilikatsi, who would not send another attack on Mushweshwe, although he did continue predating on his neighbour, Sikunila. Mzilikatsi, you see, had found it easier to plunder the Shona across the Limpopo Valley anyway. From 1831, the Indibeli chief was also defending himself from attacks by the Zulu because Dingaan ordered his impis into the Haafeld at times. Of course, the Griqua to the south were also of some concern to Mishweshwe, but the Kora were a much bigger problem. Nothing was quiet in this part of southern Africa in the third decade of the 19th century. In June 1833, what we know as Lesotho came into being for the first time, and the creation was observed by French missionaries who wrote down everything they saw. French Protestants reached Tabo Bussu from Cape Town via Philopolis, and of these, Thomas Abusset was probably the most eloquent. On the 29th of June, 1833, he wrote that Mushweshwe has a Roman head, an oval face, an aquiline nose, a long chin, and a prominent forehead, his eyes lively, his speech animated, and his voice harsh. Later, Abusset's fellow missionary, Eugene Casali, would jot down a few thoughts in his memoirs, and his notes were more exaggerated and flowery. I felt at once that I had to do with a superior man, trained to think, to command others, and above all, himself. Mushweshwe would sit with a mantle of softened leopard skins around his shoulders and glass beads around his head, to which were fastened a tuft of feathers. He wore a bracelet of ivory around his right arm, which was an emblem of power and had copper rings on his wrists. The Basutu and the Frenchman stared at each other for a few moments when Mushweshwe said, Lumela le corps! or welcome white man. Two thousand people were living on his Tabobusu citadel by 1834, as Mushweshwe continued to try and establish cordial relations with his old enemies, the Tlokwa, led by Sikunyela. They never did succeed in finding common ground, both chiefs vying for control of the Basutu, and by the end of the second decade of the 19th century, they were both being assailed by mixed-race raiders making forays into the Caledon Valley, offshoots of the Griqua chieftains. These were a real menace armed with muskets and riding horses. The precursors of the Voortrekkers who were on their way, the Kora had taken to attacking Mushweshwe's subjects from their bases east of Philippolis. Just to add a little more hot spice in this Basutu mix, another threat were bands of sand hunters. Isolated above these violent surrounds was the capital and citadel of Tabobusu, 
The summit was dominated by several clusters of huts and cattle kraals and two largish villages, one from Mushweshwe's people and the second where his father Mokachani lived. These villages had narrow lanes where children and dogs scampered playing during the day. In the middle was a vast space where the cattle were penned during the night, divided by enclosures separated by stone walls, circular, well constructed. The Basutu, like many others in southern Africa, could split rocks and stones with ease using fire and water, hammers and wooden splints. And to this day, the landscape of the region is covered with ancient structures like these. I'll discuss the forgotten stone cities of the Haufeld and the eastern slopes of Mpumalanga in one of the upcoming episodes, because there's quite a bit of disinformation about who created these circular towns. Building stone towns was a very old established tradition in southern Africa, ancient going back more than a thousand years. Not everything that was pre-colonial was a hut, contrary to popular belief. Moshweshwe lived atop Tabobusiu with his 30 wives, children and servants, along with selected councillors, and unlike all other women, his senior wives were exempt from doing any labour in the fields. Speaking of children, by now Moshweshwe had 48, according to all accounts. Also atop this mountain were male dependents of note, his rainmakers, herbalists, diviners, praise singers, town criers, personal attendants and the herdsmen. Some of these were called Batlanka, these who had no cattle, perhaps one or two sheep, if they were lucky. These could only marry if Mishweshwe provided their bohali, while the children of Batlanka inherited their status from their parents. Mishweshwe was in command of more personal attendants and livestock than any other chief in the Caledon Valley. Many of the citizens he oversaw were propertyless and were the clients of men of substance. Before the Mpatrani or the Lifakani, there had been more men of substance, but the destabilization of this region had left many destitute. This had led to a radical social and economic change in Sasutu society, with the concentration of wealth in the hands of a few. And one of the ways in which Mushweshwe served his people was by acting as their priest, as their leader, venerating what the Sasutu regarded as a supreme being. This predated the spread of Christianity, and their reverence for the Balimu, or the spirits of their ancestors, was expressed through the chief. The Balimu lead much the same sort of existence as the living, but in another world, in the bowels of the earth, from where they would observe the goings-on above. A good harvest or rain during a time of drought was dependent on these Balimu being treated with respect, and the attitude towards the dead was expressed through the Susutu prayer offered at every funeral, Ure Rabal, please sleep for us, or in other words, please don't come back and give us any trouble. To make sure troubles stayed away, a small portion of every harvest and part of the meat slaughtered at every festival would be set aside for the Balimu, and if you didn't do right by these spirits, then some misfortune would befall the Sasutu. Also lurking in the shadows, making men's crops fail, or perhaps causing them to fall and break a leg, or if someone was hit by lightning, were those who were bewitching others. The diviners would be consulted, and a great smelling out would take place, for a small fee, of course. Fines, banishment, or death could be meted out as punishment for anyone caught bewitching others. This was deeply embedded in Basutu consciousness. For example, Mushweshwe's birth name, Lepoko, means dispute, and that's because his father's village was in an uproar over an accusation of witchcraft when he was born. A diviner in Sasutu culture was often the rainmaker as well, or even a traditional healer. 
It was into this world that the first missionaries arrived, and it's so important that we have their letters and journals because they recorded a great deal about Moshweshwe and saw things from his point of view. The first white man he'd ever met was a German naturalist called Seidenstacher, who was surely fascinating because Moshweshwe watched him chase butterflies around the mountains with his net. There's another man who appeared before the French missionaries. We know him only as Martins, apparently on his way from the Orange River to Port Natal to preach to the Zulu. He stopped at Tabobusu for a month. Martins had learnt a few Sasutu words and preached on the mountain. He believed he had a gift of speaking in tongues and would thunder on for hours, dropping a few Sasutu words into his monologues, words like Koto, Hulimo, Leseli, Molelo or Chasang. God, heaven, light, burning fire. He would repeat these words with great vehemence, his hands stabbing the air, pointing into the sky. When he eventually left the bemused Busudu on the mountain, he gave Mushweshwe his umbrella and set off to astound the Tlokwa people of Sikonyela. Unfortunately, after a short while there, he marched off to Port Natal, but never made it. He was murdered and eaten by cannibals. Moshweshwe heard from travellers that there were many more Europeans living close by. Some of his people, who'd sought refuge in the Cape Colony, walked home and provided him with colourful accounts of these lives. He heard about the London Missionary Society and figured out that these strange people were a source of power, possible progress. So he told his councillors that perhaps these people would help him deal with the Kora and the Griqua and the Indibele. Further information was supplied by an emancipated slave called Adam Krotz, who arrived at Moshweshwe's mountain and sold him three muskets at 50 head of oxen. During the discussions, it became clear to the Basutu regent that these strange people popping up to the south of his home were not all the same. He noted that there were two main categories of people entering his territory. One were the mixed-race folks, the Kora, the Karana, the Griqua, who were called the Bakutu. The other were the whites, who were known as the Makua, who tended to dominate the Bakotu. That's why the Bakotu had arrived first. They were escaping the Makua. He was also informed that not only was this the case, but there were two types of Makua, the Maburu, the Boers, and the Mayanyazimani, the British. Moshweshwe's informant said that Mayanyazimani controlled the Cape government, while the Boers, the Maburu, were more like the Bakotu and didn't like the Mayanyazimani. Because he was now aware that the Boers were crossing the Orange River, following the mixed-race South Africans, the Kora and the Griqua, he realized they were a vanguard of a much more powerful people who could do him far more damage. But they were also fighting amongst themselves, which meant Moshweshwe understood he could leverage their conflict. Krotz, the freed slave, told Moshweshwe that there were strange men amongst these Manyazimani who were performing religious services for the Bakotu, the Griqua chiefs, Andris Vatabur and Adam Kok. Moshweshwe, who was always aware of diplomacy and the usefulness of religion, began to conjure up an interesting idea. Why not invite some of these mystical men in black to his mountaintop? He consulted Zapi, the diviner. He was non-committal at first. Divinity is a competition. Moshweshwe had a very good question for Tsapi. How come the Mfitkani, or the Lifkani, as the Basutu called it, had taken place? How come this terrible time had come to pass, even though the Basutu ancestors had been placated? Something was amiss, and this modern time meant there was a need for more modern remedies, thought Moshweshwe. So he told Krotz to take a message to the missionaries to say that Moshweshwe was ready to welcome Christians. 
Kratz returned to a Mr. Colby at Philippolis, a missionary who passed on the request for assistance against these roving bands of Cora to Dr. Philip, the London Missionary Society superintendent, and a man you know well. And thus, in 1833, the two French missionaries arrived, Eugène Casali and Thomas Abousset, along with the third Frenchman called Constant Grosely. Remarkably, because they were pretty tough back in 1834, Abousset was a Huguenot of only 23 years of age, Casali was just 20, Grosselin was 33, a Catholic who converted to Protestantism, he was a Mason and a tough subordinate. Krotz, the freed slave, guided them to Tabubusu, and this is where the first proper descriptions were noted about the bones scattered on the felt. And they saw the signs of the devastation that had been visited on these people. It was clear many battles had been fought along the Caledon Valley. As they travelled from Philippolis, they kept to the north of the river, heading towards the Plattbach, marvelling at the country which teemed now with game, zebras, wildebeest, ostrich, antelopes and lions. They also spotted the sand hunters, who could be seen keeping their distance. Reaching the Modarafir, they spotted their first Basutu village, but continued east and came across clumps of huts against the slopes of Tabanshu, where about 500 people lived with Mosemi, a local chief. On they went, trundling along to the Plattberg area near modern Ladybrand. Word had got around, and survivors of Matawani's abortive kingdom appeared. The village of Plattbach was both a multi-ethnic and a Creole settlement, and the inhabitants included bastard families with sand servants and a resident British missionary, his family and their Basutu servants, British traders, British laborers, and in later years, Basutu families. Trade was a very important part of the Griqua economy, coupled with raiding. In addition to hunting for skins and ivory, the Griqua traded for ivory with the Tlaping, the Baralong, and the Nguaketsi. Ivory, skins, and ostrich feathers were exchanged for alcohol, guns, and ammunition. These illicit items were essential for their survival in the frontier. They moved across the colonial frontier, hidden in barrels. A portion of the profit from this trade was used to purchase wagons and ploughs. The Dutch-speaking Griqua and a Corollas Baiki are recorded as being one of the first groups who had recently migrated across the Orange River with their flocks and herds in the early 1830s, from the northern area of the Cape Colony. The Wesleyan missionaries first encountered this group either at the Seleka Rolong settlement, the Plattberg on the Waal, or around Butsop, a village of Griqua under the leadership of Baden Barents in the near vicinity. But these accounts are ambiguous and conflicting as to exactly where they resided at that time. A reconnaissance party from Plattberg on the Waal, Butsop, and the nearby Kaikarana village was sent out to investigate the Caledon River Valley in order to find a better watered area to support the thousands of people living south of the Vaal. Negotiations duly took place between the expeditionary force on one hand and Chief Mushweshwe, as well as Chief Sukunyela of the Batlokwa on the other, whereby four areas were pinpointed as suitable for the establishment of new mission stations. Altogether, an estimated 12,000 people relocated from the towns and villages on the Vaal and Hartz rivers to the Caledon River Valley in 1833, traveling en masse for safety against attacks from the Korana. On their arrival in the Caledon Valley, they immediately divided themselves into four mission stations, according to their previous settlements. The Baralong, which by then consisted of three different Baralong groups and a Khoi-speaking group with Dutch surnames, settled under the leadership of the Saleka Rolong chief Morocco at Tabanshu. Baran Barans and his Griqua settled at Lishwani, or New Butsap, as they called it, Jan Taibosh and the Kai Korana at 
um Pukani and Carola's bikey and his bastards at Platbach on the Caledon. So as you can hear, Meshweshwe was hardly living on his mountain in some kind of splendid isolation. Things were going on. People were immigrating into the region. He was acutely aware of them and their technology. Carola's bikey and his people duly rolled up to the Platbach along with his attendant missionary, and found a well-populated area with at least 11 settled Basutu villages close by. The missionary in particular viewed these villages with a speculative gleam for potential new converts. We aren't sure of the exact composition of that mission village, but from documents it's thought a variety of different people, including Griqua, ex-slaves, Basutu, San, and even British traders, were brought together in a kind of new social context. A frontier town, bit of the wild west. There's a propensity these days to kind of write this off as missionaries arriving and abusing everyone with fire and brimstone. But as usual, the real story is much more interesting. From the African point of view, these men in black rolled up with new agricultural technology, including tools to dig wells and water furrows and their plows, the latter being the most desirable import apart from guns. The agri-tech was a godsend for people tilling the felt by hand. Now they could plough using oxen and water using furrows connected to wells. It was two years later that Kasali and Abuse arrived at Platbach, then sent a request to Meshweshwe to visit. He responded by dispatching emissaries to meet these two Frenchmen, and the emissaries rode up on horses they had seized from the Kora. The Basutu were riding the horses naked. The horses had no saddles. These were the first signs of the now famous Basutu tradition of Lesotho ponies, hardy animals that are notoriously feisty. Kasali rode forward to meet Moshweshwe and a large crowd had gathered on the summit as the Frenchman inched up the Kubelu Pass and he received an enthusiastic welcome. He was given a few sticks of wild sugarcane which grew in these parts and a pot of beer to drink. Moshweshwe knew that these men could be useful and he also knew that given the Basutu's understanding of what the supreme being was, the religious effect was not to be understated. He introduced Kasali and later Abuse to his thirty wives, then offered them any place to live. This was to be the start of what is a quite remarkable and lengthy relationship between the Basutu king and the Frenchman, one that stood the test of time, as you're going to hear in our series. Meshweshwe was promised a grand future should he accept what the missionaries called the direction of God. And the Basutu king eyed what he called the Frenchman's rolling house, their wagons, their guns, their clothes, and was convinced they did not lie. In these days of cynicism about all things of the past, it's imperative to understand that the formation of Lesotho was built in an almost unique moment where a great African leader met representatives of an alien culture, both in positions of power. Some folks ask these days why Lesotho is a country when it's seemingly so small and embedded in South Africa. While we concentrate on many leaders through our story, Moshweshwe was probably the most astute and aware. Thus, his country exists today. He also abstained from the strongest beer called Juala, as well as wild dacha called Cannabis Satava. He refused to smoke tobacco, declaring that if he were to drink, I should be talking folly before my people. This was the tradition in the family. Neither his grandfather, Pete, eaten by cannibals, nor his father Mokachani drank either. 
And before the missionaries arrived, he always had murderers and even adulterers abound and hurled off the eastern cliffs of Tabo Basu. After 1833, he scarcely imposed the death penalty. A great chief known as the Morena Amoholo had no need for extreme acts of violence, he said. Still, this was no absolute power. Moshweshwe called regular pizzas, or gathering of circumcised men, to a special meeting, which doubled up as a festival of solidarity. The meeting began with praise singing and dancing, the royal poet extolling the achievements of the king. Warriors would sing their own praises and act out their own parts of various stories, followed by a long and physically exhausting war dance involving all the warriors and Mushweshwe. Energy expended, they would sit down and the official business would be conducted. Councillors made speeches, the crowd yelled their approval or disapproval, and commoners as well as the powerful could participate in the debate sometimes criticizing their seniors. Eventually, everything quietened down and Mushweshwe then gave his ruling. It was after one of these meetings that Mushweshwe took the young Frenchman under his wing, not the other way around. Within a few days of their arrival, he led them on a trip to the southwest down the slopes of Tabo Busu to search for a site to build their first mission station. They trudged along and 24 miles later, at an uninhabited valley at the foot of the Makorani mountain. The missionaries said they were impressed with the view. Mashweshwe ordered the site to be prepared, and sending his older sons, Zaletsi, 22, and Molapo, who was 19, along with a group of men of their age, to this area. Supervising matters was their uncle, their mother's brother, Matete, with orders to help the missionaries settle down. Then they all had to listen to what these missionaries had to say. And what they had to say, we'll hear about next episode. And rejoin the Trekkers spreading out from the Cape into the interior of South Africa. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me all through Twitter at Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.